the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. Very good afternoon to you. On the Country Hour today, helping out our closest neighbour with a big biosecurity problem. At that time, we, we have no preparations at all. We have no equipments, we have no budget, we have no uh, nothing uh, in order to stop the, the virus. How Australian agricultural workers and their Timorese counterparts are getting a handle on a deadly African swine fever outbreak in East Timor's pigs. Uh, a few of us in the project consider it the pinnacle of our career because we're just using so many of the skills that we've gained over the years. Uh, and you see the, the impact almost immediately. It's the first time I've ever seen uh, the sort of response to have uh, had to a biosecurity uh, strategy to go from 150, 180,000 pigs dead to 100 at a time. It's, it's just amazing how uh, these things can, uh, can happen. That special report from Emma Field coming up very soon for you on the country. I will also take you overseas today on the program to Agritechnica in Germany, the biggest agricultural trade fair, I suppose you'd call it, for machinery and technology. What is being offered to farmers there? What could be coming to a farm near you? We will take you through all of that shortly. Right now, though, Emma Field has rural news for you. Emma. G'day Warwick. We'll start rural news with some sad news from northern Victoria where a farmer died after he was run over by his tractor on Sunday. The 65-year-old Lockington man was attaching an implement at the rear of the stationary tractor about 11 o'clock Sunday morning when it suddenly reversed onto him. WorkSafe Victoria is investigating the death. It's the 51st workplace fatality this year. Meanwhile, wild weather is continuing to hit Australian agriculture in some large growing regions. Let's start in Queensland, where farmers are still cleaning up after a freak hailstorm ripped through the Lockyer Valley on the weekend. It's destroyed an estimated $30 million of crops and a further $20 million of infrastructure. Lockyer Valley Growers President Michael Sipple says it's a terrible end to a bad season for growers. It's probably 35, 40 growers affected by this event. And it ranges depending, you know, if you had a crop of loose in the ground and, you know, got hit by hail, well, you might have missed the cutting you had there then, but you'll you'll get the next one. So your losses probably aren't as significant as, say, someone who's lost all their um, shallots, broccolini, pumpkins. Um, so some of the bigger growers, you know, their losses would be in the vicinity of 2 to $3 million dollars. We've had such a tough winter, spring prices for vegetables have been, you know, at an all-time low. So, you know, you'd hope after a year of floods you you could make some money this year, but it just hasn't happened. It's been a, a year of, you know, battening down the hatches and hoping that you've got enough money to start again next year. Um, but, yeah, it's been a been a very tough season. And, and for some growers to finish it this way, it's a pretty tough pill to swallow. In Western Australia, a frost event has caused unseasonable damage in WA's Great Southern region, with some wineries saying they may have lost around 25% of this year's fruit. Vineyard manager at Alcumi Wines in Franklin River, south of Perth, Tim Penament, says the cool temperatures hit hard. It was pretty close to the same date as it happened about four years ago. Very similar problems, less than two degrees, almost from midnight, which is the worst case scenario for frost this time of year. And unfortunately, it was it was a pretty good start to the growing season. Everything was, was looking pretty good. Uh, plenty of water in the dams and um, 
yeah, <laughs> worst case scenario, just about for us. We have lost significant portions of some of the oldest blocks, sort of 50-year-old vines that potentially will knock us for fruit volume next year as well. And still in WA, the state's biggest blueberry grower is getting much bigger, and so is the size of the fruit. The fishers already have 65 hectares of blueberries near Jinjin, just north of Perth, and plan to grow the operation to 250 hectares of blueberries by 2028. Merrick Fisher, who's managing the expansion of the Western Berry Company, says even though prices for blueberries have fallen, his company's plan is to get big in more ways than one. And we can put these berries into the market and overshadow existing producers producing one or two gram berries, whereas these berries are five, seven, eight, up to 10, 15 grams. The breeder that we have aligned with has the current world record for the largest blueberry. The Guinness World Record, it's currently at 18.6 grams, I believe, and it's from a breeder in, in WA, and at 18.6 grams, one 125-gram punnet would end up with seven berries in it. And agribusiness giant Elders says the purchase of real estate and livestock business Charles Stewart & Co has plugged a gap in its network. The sale of the southwest Victorian business ends more than 100 years of ownership by the Stewart family, although it will continue to operate under the same branding. Elders Chief Executive Mark Allison says the acquisition is a significant expansion of the company's footprint. So we had a geographical gap. Uh, We had a product and service uh, gap, in that case, the real estate and uh, agency, uh, livestock agency. Then then we uh, go through our acquisition process, which is to determine if uh, the culture of the business fits us. We felt there was a very strong alignment between uh, Charles Stewart and ourselves, and it uh, fills a significant gap that we had in Victoria. And finally today, a big shout-out to Shearer Corey Bolt, who's just managed an incredible comeback. Last year, the Catanning-based Shearer found out he had a brain tumour which turned his life upside down. But now he's back, doing what he loves, and that's shearing. Yeah, then I went to Perth and had surgery, then went, had six weeks of intense radiation, and yeah, then had 13 months off work. Talk me through the day that you first picked up those clippers again oh felt good yeah no i felt really good but yeah it was just didn't do much numbers because obviously had 13 months off my body was trying to get used to it nah i loved the first day back it was mm. good i was excited yeah nah, couldn't get a smile off my face and that story brings a smile to my face and that's real news for this tuesday Oh, it's wonderful to hear. Big shout out. I like that. Big shout out to Corey Bolt, the shearer. He's come back from a brain tumour. Oh, thanks for that, Emma. Emma Field will stay with you right now on the Country Hour where it is 12 past 12 because let's take you a feature report now on what agriculture in Australia, even more pointedly Victoria, is doing for our neighbours in East Timor. African swine fever has devastated pig populations across five continents and it's considered one of the top risks to Australian agriculture. And when it hit China, devastating its pork production, meat prices spiked around the world. But for one of our closest neighbours, East Timor, the impact of disease on everyday Timorese was just as bad and Australian scientists are there to help, as Emma Field reports. I'm at the Fatu Maka Agricultural School at Fidloru, east of Dili, 
walking through irrigation, set up in Portuguese colonial times. The school is run by priest Padre Locatelli. A prominent figure during the two decades of Timorese resistance against Indonesian occupation. The farm was often raided during that time and he was tortured. But it's not history I've come to see. Past the rows of buildings which serve as boarding houses for students and near the free-range chickens, buffalo and a monkey in a cage, are some brand new pig pens. They are part of the battle against African swine fever, which devastated the country in 2019. And a team of Victorian veterinarians and now Australian government funding is helping the small island nation build its biosecurity resources in hopes of boosting animal protein production. East Timor's Ministry for Agriculture, Livestock, Fisheries and Forestry Chief Veterinarian Dr Janita Jong tells me what happened in November 2019 when they first received reports of African swine fever. At that time we are facing very difficult situations when we have the report coming from farmers that they have lots of pigs dying in uh, the capital city. Uh, because we are, have very long-standing collaborations with the Department of Agriculture uh, Australia. Um, and then I call them and then I say, uh, can you help me because I have problems here. Uh, we have lots of pigs dying and then we didn't know what the disease uh, there. At the time, China was suffering its second major swine fever outbreak where millions of pigs died and the disease spread to Indonesia, which shares a land border with East Timor. But without any ability to test for the disease, Dr Joanita asked to send a sample to an Australian government lab near Geelong in Victoria. This was just the start of Australians' involvement. When I... Um have the results back from uh, Geelong that we have ASF positive. And then I ask our colleagues back there, they said, what I have to do now? At that time, we, we have no preparations at all. We have no equipments, we have no budget, we have no uh, nothing uh, in order to stop the, the virus. East Timor's government then made a direct request for continued help from Australia. I got a phone call from Canberra uh, from the guys who had funded us to create a field test called LAMP against African swine fever. And the guys in Canberra uh, said, uh, how's this test going that you've been developing? And we were just about to take it overseas to uh, give it a really good trial. And uh, they said, well, rather than take it to Vietnam, could you uh, go to Timor? Uh, because we've got a problem. So that's how we wound up in Timor. We were in, in Timor setting up uh, for testing within two weeks. It was uh, pretty full on. That's Agriculture Victoria research leader and pathobiology veterinarian, Professor Grant Rawlin. The lamp test, we could actually run that out of a, a, um, a ute, uh, and that's how it's designed to use in Australia. Uh, but uh, the trouble with that we had over in Timor was their laboratory was not suited for, uh, if you like, the gold standard, which is PCR, uh, polymerase chain reaction uh, testing. So they didn't have any testing at all for African swine fever. So by us taking our field test over, at least they could uh, actually have their laboratory uh, working on African swine fever. So that's, uh, that's how we did it. We uh, took the, uh, the actual testing unit. It's about the size of a, of a novel. 
uh, and uh, fully portable. Uh, you can plug it into the into a car charger. He headed to Timor with two other Agriculture Victorian specialists, Peter Mee and Diane Phillips. We took what skills we had in those three people and uh, arrived, uh, met Joe and Eta, Uh, at the airport and within half an hour I realised that everything that I'd planned would not work in Timor. Pork production is vastly different in Timor. There are no large-scale piggeries, subsistence farming is common and there's certainly no cold chain supply network. Plus, most rural households own a pig as they have a very special cultural significance as Dr Joanita explains. Pigs uh, play very important roles in our social community in Timor-Leste. Culturally, pig is very important because uh, when we cultural ceremony, uh, it requires live pigs. And also, pigs also uh, support our local farmers because uh, they say that animals, the, the pigs, raising pigs at home, like give them like safe because they have like like a life bank. Anytime they can sell, they can they can get the money. Yeah, can get if the money. They, yeah, yeah. They, in, in these emergency situations, yeah. some of them they are they because they livelihood they just depend on the pigs. Mm. When we visit them, they just crying. They say we lost of the pigs. What we have to do? Soon after, East Timor's Ministry for Agriculture started a publicity campaign to educate farmers and other pig owners about the disease and measures to prevent its spread. This included a special hotline nicknamed the Pig Phone and YouTube videos. Moras Africa Swine Fever or Mebe and the Australian government was closely watching developments. East Timor is just an hour and a half flight from Darwin. Sniffer dogs are being urgently flown to Darwin in a bid to stop African swine fever from entering the country. Now this comes after several confirmations of the disease in East Timor. For the Agriculture Victoria team, that first visit in 2019 was just the beginning of a biosecurity partnership. Three weeks was the start because when we came back, uh, Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade came knocking at the door and and said uh, that uh, Timor was very pleased with what we'd done and uh, how could uh, Canberra continue this work. We wound up with uh, three years funding to continue the work on African swine fever because it was still running at that stage uh, on the, and we we're looking at recovery. Uh, that first tranche of funding that was for three years and that was looking at increasing the uh, testing, so uh, making sure the lamp uh, test was continuing and backing all, backing that up, more training in the lamp systems, but also uh, surveillance, getting surveillance out around the country, knowing where that disease was. The Victorian government's support included helping the Timorese rebuild their herd, which included rolling out biosecurity pig pens, which was something I saw at the Fatumaka Agricultural School, which were built in locations free of ASF. So those the biosecurity pens that we build, with the um, we test to see the whether they free from ISF, mm-hmm. and then distribute to the biosecurity the uh, safe destinations. Professor Rowland explains the concept is based on really simple biosecurity. Traditionally, a lot of the pigs would be just wandering around foraging. So if you have the pigs that are being uh, kept in a biosecure pen, it's just like a pigsty but you have a, a second fence around that. As long as you don't have, if you like, nose-to-nose contact, the disease stops. We've had cases where uh, we've had um, 
large losses of African swine fever within metres of the control area and the disease has not come in and that has really impressed uh, some of the uh, the villagers who are now really great supporters of the restocking program. The first outbreak was basically out of control. When it arrived, it went all over the place uh, and there were around about 150, 180,000 pigs that died. That affects something like 50,000 families because most families over there have a pig or, or three. Since then, with the surveillance and the testing, the very quick testing, uh, we can diagnose within 24 hours now. We've had another couple of outbreaks of African swine fever up there, and each time we've lost less than 100 pigs. That's the power of the system that these guys now have. And after the success of the ASF regime, Dr Joanita says they're developing new measures against other biosecurity threats. Because we are still free from uh, food and mouth disease and uh, lumpy skin disease, but it is risk, uh, still a high risk to Timor-Leste. That's why we did uh, the support from the Department of Agriculture uh, in Canberra. We have uh, uh, regular surveillance every year. This year, we just uh, finalised survey, big survey in all villages along the border. All with the border with Indonesia? With Indonesia. So- to proof of freedom for food and mouth disease, lump skin disease, as well as to uh, find out the prevalence of uh, brucellosis. Brucellosis. Yeah, brucellosis. So, so that's another disease. That's another disease that a um, concern to you. Yeah, yeah. Mm. To prevent the country from food and mouth disease and lump skin disease, we now stop the importations of live animals from Indonesia. Going back to African swine fever, did you learn a lot out of that um, outbreak that you've been able yeah. to... That, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, we learn a lot. And then uh, luckily that we have this uh, always support from our, our neighbour countries, which is Australia, it's very uh, helpful in our difficult situations. Give us the motivations to, to work and to collaborate and yeah, to help our farmers. The biosecurity partnership has been extended. The Australian government announced this year it will provide a further $3.5 million in funding to the Victorian government to continue the work over the next five years. This will extend the Victorians' work to cover other livestock diseases, plus testing of all livestock species. And Timorese veterinarians and researchers will visit Victorian government research facilities to work alongside Australian staff. And Professor Rawlin says his work in Timor has left a deep impression. Oh, it's fantastic. Uh, a few of us in the project consider it the pinnacle of our career because we're just using so many of the skills that we've gained over the years. Uh, and can you see the, the impact almost immediately? It's the first time I've ever seen uh, the sort of response we've uh, had to a biosecurity uh, strategy to go from 150, 180,000 pigs dead to 100 at a time. It's it's just amazing how uh, these things can uh, can happen. So personally, it's been a really good journey. But we would have achieved nothing without the Timorese. Uh, they have been absolutely brilliant. They worked hard. Uh, they worked smart. Uh, but it's become really quite a close and friendly relationship. Uh, very professional, and uh, I, I haven't seen anything like it in my life before. Isn't that an incredible insight into how Victorian agriculture can help uh, agriculture in another 
part of the world, indeed, one of our closest neighbours in East Timor, uh, with major biosecurity concerns. That's Agriculture Victoria Research Leader Professor Grant Rawland finishing that report from Emma Field. You're listening to The Country Hour. It is 25 past 12. We'll keep the international theme going on The Country Hour right now, but we'll head further afield than East Timor because the world's biggest showcase of agricultural tech and machinery is currently spread across around 40 hectares of halls in Germany as we speak. Called Agritechnica, the event attracts the biggest brands in farm machinery and sees product launches for new equipment. So what's being talked about there today could be on a farm near you next year. Chris McCulloch is an international freelance agri-journalist from Northern Ireland, and he's been walking around this massive event. I pulled him aside for a quick chat. Probably the biggest prime machinery show in the world, and it's absolutely crazy. I'm putting in 15,000 steps per day, wandering around 24 halls full of farm machinery. The 24 halls take up about 39 hectares in size, so you can guess my feet are busted, mate. And also, it's, uh, there's about 2,810 exhibitors here from 52 countries around the world. And the organisers, the DLG, which is the German Agriculture Society, are expecting 400,000 visitors over the seven days of this show. 400,000 visitors. And as you say, nearly 40 hectares. That's just massive um they're the numbers but put into our minds just the the scale of it to your eyes when you're walking around yeah it's it's, it's quite daunting i mean I'm a, I'm a bit of a veteran reporter at this thing i've been here a few times so it's quite daunting when you walk into say one of the halls and it's just completely taken over by one brand of farm machinery like class or agco and the just these bright bright big shiny color machines are everywhere so it's but when you're walking between the halls there's a, and I mean you have to walk outside when, between the halls and it can take you from the furthest points, it could take you like 20 minutes, 25 minutes to walk between the two furthest halls just to get around. What's on show this year, Chris? What's got your eye or what's being debuted that, uh, that you're reporting on? Well, this show is taking a place now. It's 2023. It's it held every two years. So it was cancelled uh, two years ago, by unfortunately, by the COVID. So this is like a huge get-together for the, for the manufacturers who have suffered a wee bit. There's not as much new stuff as what we expected, but one of the two of the main ones is New Holland have, <coughs> excuse me, has introduced a new combine CR11, which is supposed to revolutionary, revolutionise the art of combine to bring the efficiency up near 100%. So like zero grain losses is what they're claiming. So they, they took the covers off that yesterday morning. We were there to see it and made some videos and some pictures. That one's going to, yeah, that's going to upset or upset their competitors, I suppose. Other other new things is like Massey Ferguson have introduced a huge 9S series of tractors. Again, they dropped the covers off that one um, yesterday to a big fanfare of fans and journalists and all the rest of it. But then taking into consideration non-machines, you know, there's quite a few different things here in terms of agri-tech to make things more efficient. I've even seen one today that uh, from Crone, they've got a, obviously they've got a few round balers, but they're starting to tag the bales with CR codes. I mean, that's pretty unique to me. With uh, the moisture content, the day and date it was baled and where it was baled and all this sort of stuff. So you've got on one side the huge shiny machines, lots of tyre kicking, and then you've got right down to the smallest bit of agri-tech that farmers are supposed to find handy to, efficient, to make them more efficient. The only thing that I'm seeing is there's quite a few concepts in terms of uh, alternative fuels. 
Um, so there's a lot of new electric concepts coming through, diet feeders, tractors, uh, telehandlers, that sort of thing, even little uh, buggies that are electric instead of your quad bike. But will they ever come to commercial production? That's the big question. But that's a big conversation going on even in, in Germany at the moment, alternative power for farm machinery. Yeah, it is, yeah. I mean, we're under pressure in Europe to get the right, the, the emissions down. The new regulations from the EU um, are, are really getting hard stuck into this and they want, obviously they're targeting farming, unfairly some might say, but they're targeting farming and they've got to get these emissions. So a lot of the companies are heading towards methane, fuel tractors, hydrogen, HVO and electric. So, you know, take your pick, but they're all big bucks. And I don't know how justifiable they're going to be to your ordinary farmer in the future. But the companies have to be seen to be making some headway in reducing these emissions to help farmers out. But you're going to pay for it. Well, you mentioned the new New Holland Combine. We've been talking a lot about the the John Deere X9 in Australia being well over a million dollars to Australian farmers. Yeah. I can't imagine uh, their competitors will be bringing out cheaper equipment. So is, is the higher cost of agricultural equipment something that's up for discussion too? It is up for discussion. And funny, we mentioned this today. I was asking a few questions about how flexible or how friendly the finance institutions, the banks and the private lenders are towards uh, this new machinery because obviously it's going on the tech like nobody's going to pay cash for these types of things and there is you know, we've got a bit of high interest rates here across Europe for this type but there are some of the private individuals and the banks I suppose who are, who are confident the farm is going to be good in the future and they're confident to lay their money on the line but at the same time the farming statistics that are you know farmers are staying within the industry aren't so good so if they take a big combine out on on the tick or on the bank loans and don't last the payment time, you still got to pay it, you know. Does this sort of set the tone, really, for what you're going to hear from dealers and the industry for the year ahead? Yes, that's exactly right. This show is seen as a mega mecca for farm machinery. So what goes down here, what's out in the halls here at the moment, is really what's going to set the pace for everything coming up in the future. I walked in today into the horse stand, and it's quite a big stand. I couldn't tell you the square feet. It was quite big, quite big machines. And I was hearing figures of, a few million euros to rent the space that was in there. <laughs> you know, so they've got to get a they've got to get a return on their investment. They've got to be fairly confident with spending that amount of money that things are going to progress in the future and they're going to get these machines out to the market. That's Chris McCulloch, and uh, freelance agri journalist from Northern Ireland. He does work across a number of countries. So speaking to us from Agri Technica in Hanover, Germany, forty hectares of walking. Uh, it's on until the 18th of November. If you're around social media or if you pick up a farm mag over the next few months, I'm sure you're going to be seeing pictures from Agritechnic. It is massive. And the equipment being launched there is massive too. And as you just heard, it costs a lot for the companies to present there, which is mighty interesting. If you've got something to say, we'll bring you closer to home. We'll talk Things like uh, a massive exit from the hazelnut industry just north of our border. Uh, we'll also look at harvest in the Mallee after the news and weather. You can send us a text, though, 0467 842 If you've got much of this rain going through, I'd love to hear from you as well, 0467 842 Right now, though, let's find out what's making regional news headlines uh, with Emil Pavlich today. Good afternoon, Emil. G'day, was Making regional news headlines. A new report shows rental affordability in regional Victoria has hit a record low, with only three regional areas considered affordable for renters on an average household income. The National Shelter 
SGS Rental Affordability Index has, uh, has been released today, revealing Kerrang, Nil and Yamurka are the only regional postcodes considered to have affordable rentals in 2023. Veteran Federal Victorian Liberal MP Russell Broadbent has quit the party and will move to the crossbench. His decision follows his pre-selection loss for his Victorian seat of Monash to Mary Aldred. A mother in the state's north says her family is struggling with a crippling lack of access to early childhood education and care. Tanil Edge has been fighting for a childcare centre in Kahuna since 2020 and says she's even moved town and paid au pairs to educate and care for her children. A new report by non-for-profit organisation The Parenthood has laid out more than 150 stories outlining limited or non-existent access to early childhood education and care for families in regional, rural and remote Australia. And a Southern Grampianshire councillor calling for increased local roads funding is welcoming the damning findings of an independent report on the Australian road network. A new Grattan Institute report called... Uh, called some remote roads in Australia a dangerous disgrace and estimated an extra $1 billion is needed to fund local roads. Marianne Brown, the Chair of Rural Councils Victoria and Southern Grampianshire Councillor, welcomed the report's findings, saying it highlights the concerns of local communities and councils. That's the latest in regional news headlines. Back to you, Warwick. Thanks, Emil. Emil Pavlich there with regional news headlines. Uh, Warwick along with you for the Country Hour. Lincoln Trainer with you from the Bureau of Meteorology to take you through the full forecast. Very cloudy, still a little couple of drops of rain falling outside my window in Shepparton and Lincoln. Has it fallen widely today? Yes. Uh, good afternoon, Warwick. Yeah, it was obviously this was the small rainfall event of the week. It hasn't been a lot in it, but... Yeah, the Melly and Wimmera this morning, uh, that saw between one to three millimetres. Uh, and then since 9am, central and northeastern parts have seen about one to four millimetres. Fabrum uh, was the top with a recording four millimetres. Uh, as of now, in Alpine regions have seen about two to four millimetres. So a little bit around, but that that's basically what was expected? <laughs> yeah, that was pretty much what is expected. I can, looking at the satellite picture... There's obviously still a lot of cloud around that um, that kind. There was an upper feature, and that's moving into the eastern parts of the state and starting to ease. So we're probably seeing most of it now, and then we're going to return to relatively dry conditions tomorrow. Uh, if we kind of look at that, this this kind of ridge of high pressure persists across Victoria, and that's bringing some light to moderate southerly flow today, um, and that's really going to persist until the weekend. Uh, we will see those cooler and cloudier conditions in the south. And then, as I said, tomorrow will be more partly cloudy and probably seeing a bit more sunshine in the north. Um, if we uh, look at tomorrow, um, just uh, it's... Well, actually, let's have a look at some temperatures today. Uh, with, with the temperatures um, in the north uh, being more in the low 20s and under the cloud... Mildura will be our top temperature today of 25, Swan Hill 22, Horsham 19, Shepparton 21, Echuca 20, Bendigo 19, and in southern parts, only in the high teens, Ballarat 17, Hamilton 18, Salem, Bansdale 19. But Wednesday will be relatively dry, um, temperatures increasing 3 to 5 degrees in the north, 
with a mostly sunny day and remaining cool in the south. Mildura will jump up to 29, Horsham 26 and Bendigo 25. Um, Thursday to Friday, slightly milder in the north as the uh, southerly winds increase a little and that uh, and the high moves into the bite. So showers will increase a little bit in the south, but only one to two mil at most. Saturday, Sunday, temperatures begin to slowly heat up again. North will see the high 20s. Uh, south will be in the low 20s. Warmer still Sunday. Uh, north of the state will see low 30s. South of the state, low to mid 20s. Um, and then if we look at Monday, and now we're starting to look at Monday, temperatures continue to rise in the east. North will see low to mid 30s and in the south, mid 20s. And maybe the next thing to think about is an inland trough that's slowly extending over East Victoria on Monday. That could bring the chance of a thunderstorm. So we're going to keep an eye on that for the northeast and east Gippsland. The uh, the entire rainfall map for Australia for the next couple of days is incredibly dry, Lincoln. There's, there's not much action anywhere. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think we do. I mean, we are kind of moving into that El Nino and a uh, Indian Ocean dipole uh, these two kind of intra-seasonal events mean, you know, we're expecting dry conditions across Australia and less than median rainfall, and we're starting to see the impacts of that. So that means barely anything for us on the warning front, but but fire weather warnings, are we close to, to those being upgraded yeah. over the week? Yeah, very good question. I mean, we're not at warning threshold, but Wednesday... It will be at high level, uh, which is below. We need to get to extreme to get to a warning, but we are high at Mallee Wimmera Wednesday. Thursday, um, with the winds increasing, the winds really play a factor with the fire dangers, um, and the winds increasing just a little bit from the south. We'll see the Mallee Wimmera and the northern country at a high level, and Friday will only be high in the Mallee. But as temperatures pick up across the weekend, obviously we'll keep a close eye, but it looks like the winds won't be... That's significant, so they'll stay under warning level for the next four to five days. Lincoln, always appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us. No problems, Warwick. Lincoln Trainer there, Senior Forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology. A couple of you on the text line, 0467 842 722. Uh, Leo says, G'day, Was The bomb said there was going to be bugger all rainfall up here in the northeast, and yes, they were 100% correct. We've had... 0.6 of a millimetre at Gundowring. <laughs> I love it when you get to the points, Leo. Thank you for sending that through. I think it was David Evans when I was reporting, put out a piece of blotting paper in the drought and counted how many drops of rain there were to try and average <laughs> how many millimetres there would have been. If you don't laugh, you cry sometimes, but there are funny moments in agriculture. Casper says, I work. I'm just pressing up a bit of merino wool on a surprisingly damp day as well. Thanks for that, Casper. You can always send us a photo too. 0467-842-722. Don't mind getting a photo of what you're up to on the farm if you don't mind sending it to us. We'd love to see it. Uh, you're listening to the Country Hour. Let's talk hazelnuts right now on the program because Australia's hazelnut industry is reeling from news that the Ferrero Group, yes, you know, the chocolates, is giving up a up on a $70 million investment to grow hazelnuts in southern New South Wales. The Italian, Italian uh, confectionery company behind brands like Ferrero Rocher, Nutella and Kinder Surprise planted 
over 1 million trees near Narandra. But now it's ripping them all out and putting the property up for sale. Uh, Emily Doak has more. When the Australian arm of the Ferreira Group launched its $70 million hazelnut production venture in the Riverina a decade ago, it was lauded as a shot in the arm for the local industry. A million trees were planted by 2018, but the company says yields have fallen below expectations, making the project no longer commercially viable. Executive Officer of Hazelnut Growers of Australia, Trevor Ranford, is disappointed the trees are being pushed out. Extremely disappointed, not only for you know the industry in general, but certainly for all of those uh, people that have been employed and engaged in building uh, such a uh, impressive uh, orchard and business. Uh, so you know a lot of hard work and uh, toil and uh, an effort went into it. But uh, you know the decisions are being made by uh, people uh, who own the business outside of Australia and uh, you know, they're making those decisions on uh, you know, return on investment and uh, I suppose the current uh, climatic uh, or environmental uh, and financial uh, situations uh, that exist in the world at the present moment. Selling agent Matt Childs from CBRE expects the 2,600 hectare property with more than 11,000 megalitres of water entitlements will fetch more than $80 million dollars. And he says the fact that it's free of hazelnut trees is an advantage. Sometimes these buyers would need to uh, go and remove those trees themselves, which is a significant investment just in doing that, uh, and also a significant amount of time to prepare the land so that it's ready for that new planting. So this is all being fast-tracked. It's being offered as a reversion opportunity, as in the land has been reverted from hazelnut trees back to a, a you know a black uh, irrigated platform but not to mention also installation of the irrigation infrastructure takes time as well. Uh, you expect that it, it's going to be um, of interest for permanent horticulture plantings. Is there much interest and what's the market like in that sector at the moment in your experience? Um, we're still a few weeks away from knowing the end result, but so far we're pretty satisfied with how it's performing. I mean, there's parts of the agribusiness market at the moment that are struggling, especially around livestock and those operators, but it seems like the institutional and corporate space, particularly around horticulture and particularly with strong and reliable um, irrigation water entitlements, that part of the market still has quite a bit of strength. Trevor Ranford from Hazelnut Growers of Australia says while the exit of Ferrero from growing nuts locally is a blow, there's still potential for the Australian industry to grow and fill gaps in supply. As the other uh, producers uh, increase, then uh, maybe their volumes uh, can be utilised uh, by uh, Ferrero uh, in, in their processing facilities. And you know, I think the important thing is that um, some of the genetic material that uh, they brought into uh, and, and planted within that orchard has been distributed uh, uh, through their nursery to to other growers uh, around Australia, so um, you know, there's that opportunity to see uh, you know, ongoing expansion of those uh, varieties that uh, were considered uh, uh, you know, most valuable uh, for their confectionery type business.
That's Hazelnut Growers Australia Executive Officer Trevor Ranford speaking there, ending that report from Emily Doak. So we've been international. We've been to uh, to Europe, to East Timor, to New South Wales. Let's come back home to Victoria now where grain growers are reporting solid yields as harvest rolls on in northern and northwest growing regions. And ideal harvesting weather is proving a blessing for some farmers who battled endless rain trying to get crops off last year. Underbull grower Andrew Wilsmore says he's happy with his results so far. We're in lentils at the minute. We've um, we've knocked off a bit of barley, so things are going well at the minute. There's been some um, differing sort of yield results in the lentils. They're a little bit down than what we thought, maybe that ton to a ton and a half. But, uh, look, the, the quality's excellent, so we'll get what we can get. The barley was good. Most farmers have finished their barley program now, and most reports are around that three to four ton, which is, which is excellent. So um, there's a little bit getting done up here in the valley. And just on the lentils, Andrew, just didn't quite get that um, timely spring rain that they, they would have liked to maximise yield? No, we just didn't quite get it. We got a we had that little hot spell which, which really set them back and then we did end up getting a rain, but I think the damage was done. So, yeah, they're just, they're just not quite there than, than what we had hoped. But, but look, at reasonable money, um, at a tonne and a tonne and a half, uh, there won't be too many complaining, I don't think. And plenty of lentils around. It's, it seems like year on year that there seem to be more and more grown. They're everywhere up here, yeah. Uh, we had a reasonable program of them, so we've still got a week or so to go. And uh, there, There's more and more lentils getting grown. The vetch seems to have disappeared a little bit and um, everyone's chasing the, the lentil dollar. So there's a lot of hectares up this way now that are, that are sown down to lentils. So And look, it's a, it seems to be a profitable crop at the minute. Speaking of vetch, did you have much hay in the program this year? We had a little bit. We uh, we reduced our reduced our numbers purely because we went more lentils, but uh, the hay was good. Other than you know some wind issues trying to get it raked and get it in a bale, but the hay was successful. So uh, that all went all went pretty well. So it's all in the shed. Uh, all good. So a bit of hay, and uh, we had a little bit of spell before harvest, which was excellent. So everyone went into harvest all fresh and ready to go. And what have you got ahead of you? Uh, we've still got a week or so on lentils. Um, and then we've got all our wheat, lupins, field peas. Uh, yeah, we've got a little bit to go yet. Um, but things are going well. Weather seems to be hanging in and uh, nice nice harvesting weather. So cool in the mornings where you can get a bit of maintenance done. And yeah, we'll be, we'll be at it for another month or so yet. So a bit to go, Andrew, but it just sounds like everything's uh, falling into place as compared to last year when it was sort of the opposite in terms of good harvesting weather. Last year was uh, was more than a headache, yes. Uh, the wet conditions and um, the wet harvest but caused a lot of problems. But in the end, uh, even though it was a lot of hard work and a, you know, a lot of headaches, it was a successful sort of outcome. So, yeah, we got it off um, and naturally... That huge soil and moisture profile we went in with this year certainly saved us. I know we were cursing it last year, but when you go in with a full profile, we've only had 167 mil of growing season rainfall here, and uh, to to be getting the yields that are getting now is is just testament to the the practices that are happening up in this way. So yeah, things are going well. So I suppose that's just reinforcing what, what everyone already knows quite well, that, that uh, preserving that subsoil moisture is, is king for you guys? Uh, it is the one and only thing that you must do, correct? Yeah, no, you need moisture. So 
Um, without that, you're pretty pretty well fighting an uphill battle. And yeah, look, there's some there's a lot of exciting things going on up here. There's some progressive farmers that are really pushing the boundaries with brown manures and high rates of urea and seeing what they can actually drag out of the Mallee soils up here. So um, there's plenty of interest as, as to how far it can go and, and there's plenty of farmers that are trying it and we'll all wait and see uh, how far they can push the envelope. And Andrew, lots of uh, job positions to fill come harvest time in trucks and headers and chases and whatever else. How's everyone gone um, Yeah, finding workers? Yeah, I think there's... Um, Hasn't been too much of a problem. There's a lot of contractors up this way at the minute. So sort of uh, there's a lot of farmers that have got contractors on their lentils while they're getting their barley off, a little bit gun-shy on what happened last year with the rain. So I think the workforce is pretty well covered. We've a bit of a family affair here. I've got my son on the other header and my daughter's on the chaser and the wife's running around with keeping food and drinks up to us. So pretty pretty family affair here, mate. So there's the odd discussion when we get home of a night, but it all works out. And those contractors, Andrew, uh, there's been a bit of talk about more contractor availability with with the guys from up north not having a lot on and chasing work down here. Is that the case? Uh, look, I don't think there's been too many issues finding anyone, no. No, so let's say there's more, more probably the most I've ever seen around here of late. Andrew, you're heavily involved in the Oyun Footy Club's crop, I think, barley this year, and how did all that go? Yeah, excellent day. We had a ripping day. We got five headers there and five chases, five doubles, um, took the barley off. Yeah, we had some Maximus barley down there, which which went all right. So, look, it was a great day. The community rallies together and especially the football club. We've got some incredible volunteers that donate time and machinery and, you know, just pretty much everything. So you put the call out to ask the volunteers and, and you get plenty. So a great effort there, which was excellent. So we'll try and um, try and spend it on a few things around the club and maybe even try and buy a footballer. Well, that's it. It's an expensive business running a footy club these days, isn't it? <laughs> Ridiculous, yes. Yes, it's a, it's a big business. It's it's huge nowadays. So, yeah, yep. we'll... Uh, not sure how we're shaping up just yet. We'll, uh, we've lost a few. We had, uh, had some injuries and whatnot, a few departures. But like with any football club, we'll uh, we'll keep trying to recruit. And, um, yeah, we'll be there or thereabouts, hopefully. That's Underbull grain grower Andrew Wilsmore. Also speaking about the prospects of the football club, a uh, good crop. A valuable crop must help. He was speaking to Angus Verley. And just before we get to markets, on the country out. Let's talk about, well, the future of a market which was once the backbone of that northwest region of Victoria. Australia's dried fruit industry has had a tough couple of years. Last season, growers produced their smallest harvest in more than three decades after months of rain brought an influx of pests and diseases. And this month, growers will vote on a proposal to almost double the levy they pay to fund research and development into things like mechanisation and new plant varieties. It's something their industry body, Dried Fruits Australia, hopes will turn a trend of falling production, which has been happening since the 1990s, around. Elsie Kennedy spoke to Mark King, a Sunraysia dried fruit grower and the chairman of Dried Fruits Australia. A few decades ago, sultanas were the bread and butter of horticultural production in the Sunraysia region of northwest Victoria. Now, just 3,000 hectares of the crop is grown here, after many growers pulled out their vines and replaced them with wine grapes in the 1990s and 2000s. Last year, 
Dried grape production hit a new low of just 12,000 tonnes, down from more than 90,000 tonnes in the early 90s. But demand for dried fruit is growing, and the dried fruit industry says new technology could hold the key to increasing production and attracting more producers back to the crop. Here's Dried Fruits Australia chairman Mark King. We're trying to save costs for growers, trying to come up with new varieties, trying to look where we can mechanise things, and of course all this costs money. It's R&D, research and development. Dried Fruits Australia is proposing to increase the levy that growers pay from $11 to $20 a tonne. That's quite a steep jump. Do you expect there'll be much resistance from growers? I'd be very much surprised because I think they realise that $11 is just not going to keep us going forward. You're a grower yourself. Mechanisation is something that you think should be prioritised when it comes to how to spend that extra money. Why is that? I mean, labour's just expensive. It's hard to get. One of the inventions that we come up with last year, which was through the R&D committee, is a pruning machine that runs along and goes in and out when it's supposed to and cuts off one side of the cordon. Now, I think it's something like about $1,100 a hectare. We've figured out that that's what it saves a grower, which is a big saving. It's a huge saving, and, and it's also a time factor. It gets you across the patch so much quicker. And that's only one. I mean, I know that we're looking at a weedicide unit that instead of when you're spraying out the middle of the rows, um, it only sprays where there's green or weeds. You can actually program it to just spray the weeds in the middle of the row. Things like that. I mean, anywhere where we can save some labour. And how, how is the industry going broadly? Like as a producer, are you confident in the returns that you're getting that there is a strong industry there going forward? Oh, for sure. The actual world industry usually has about 1.2 million tonnes, these are round figures, um, every year. Last year, 880,000 tonnes was the world, is all that was grown in the world of um, dried fruit. I've never known it to be down that low. So, you know, supply and demand, the price is strong. The prices in everywhere else in the world uh, are good and high, which is great because they won't be trying to push um, fruit into Australia at a lower price. Um, it's, it is. It's actually you know, quite buoyant and it's quite um, positive at the moment. We've got some big growers or big corporates that are coming into the um, play. I think they can see that dried fruit's wanted all around the world. It's getting less of it and it's getting more people. And I'm quite confident that um, it will keep getting going that way because the US, who was one of the largest producers have come down by 150,000 tonne. Turkey was down by 180,000 tonne last year. Every country was down. I mean, we were too, but it's not because of the vines in the ground. It was mainly because of the um, disease issues that we had last year, where with those other countries, it's because the, a lot of grapes have been taken out and been put in with something else because they were old and people have gone away from it in those countries. That's Dried Fruits Australia Chairman Mark King speaking there to Elsie Kennedy. Uh, On the Country Hour now, you know what time it is. To market, to market, let's start with the sheep and lambs today. We'll go to Ballarat and Shiona Lamb. Good afternoon, Shiona. Good afternoon. Lamb numbers slipped slightly to 32,000, drawn for quality improved over the lightweight and trade lambs, ranging from plain to very good. Again, the heavy export lambs presented in very good condition, but were in limited supply. The usual buying group attended, with extra processor and store buyers present, but not all operated fully. The market opened stronger, 
on the light store type lands. And as the sale progressed, prices remained firm till a week ago, then gained intensity towards the end of the market. Light lands sold to eight better. Medium and heavy trade sold to five stronger. Heavy export were to six dearer. Lands back to the paddock made seven to 88 for the lighter weights and 74 to 119 for the lands over 18 kilos. Lands to the trade to suit MK orders sold 57 to $87 a head. Lands to the trade 18 to 22 kilos sold 77 to 115. 22 to 26 sold 100 to 140 with a wide range of 430 to 500 cents a kilo carcass weight. Export lands over 26 sold 134 to 184, averaging 5.15 to 5.30 cents a kilo. There are still sheep to be sold. This is Shiona Lamb at Ballarat for MLA. Thanks, Shiona. Let's go to the cattle markets now. We'll start in Wodonga with Leanne Dax. Good afternoon. Numbers doubled with 2,026 cattle offered at Wodonga. It was an excellent offering with a large percentage heavy steers and bullocks and heifers. Trade cattle in reasonable supply along with 519 cows. All buyers made it to the sale this week resulting in substantial price increases across export categories. Heavy steers jumped 25, 170 to 225. Bullocks gained 15, 185 to 237. Heavy feeder steers picked up 15 cents topping at 220. Trade steers were firm 144 to 225. Feeder steers 185 to 225. Feeder heifers 180 to 198 for the medium weights. Trade heifers 157 to 240. They were back 30 cents. Heavy heifers improved 6 to 10, 175 to 213. Heavy cows picked up 5, 180 to 190. Middle run of leaner types 148 to 174. I'm Leanne Dax for MLA. Thanks, Leanne. Let's go to Nicole Varley for our last market today at the Shepherd and Cattle Market. Take it away, Nicole. Good afternoon. Well, the numbers jumped coming off the back of the short holiday week. There were 1,000 exports and 240 trade cattle penned. All the usual buyers were back at the rails. Prices were stronger for some of the better shaped and conditioned yearling steers and heifers. Export prices were mixed. Cows met a softer trend in some places while there was an improved lineup of heavy steers. Prices are generally stronger for the better shaped and conditioned types. Not a lot of cho- to choose from, however, amongst the trade. The handful of veal is made from 206 to a top of 298 cents for some B-muscle types. Yearling steers range from 180 to 240. Yearling heifers, 190 to 230. There was a few more barren heifers of good quality. They made from 185 to 215. 400 to 500 kilo C-muscled steers, 175 to 225. There was large numbers of heavy Frisian steers, 155 to 172 cents. Heavy beef cows, 156 to 188. Majority of the dairy cows had plenty of cover and size on them this week, and they made from 142 to 172 cents. This is Nicole Varley from Shepparton. Thanks very much for that, Nicole. That's about all the time we have for you on the Country Hour today. Remember our website, abc.net.au slash rural. If you want to go read about some melons you'll never see on the supermarket shelf, but we're exporting Uh, at quite the rate from Queensland. You can read about that on the Rural website now. You can also read about, oh, there's a few basin stories there or even our story from yesterday uh, with Farmer Power deciding to disband. It's all up there, abc.net.au slash rural. Have a great afternoon. It's one o'clock.